invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And invite you to give attention to the words of the one living and true God as we read. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were in all about twelve men. And we give thanks for the reading of God's word. I want you to notice, first of all, as we dive into this text, what the context of our text is. In Acts 18, 1 to 17, Paul is ministering in Corinth. He begins in the tent-making shop of Aquila and Priscilla. When Timothy and Silas arrive, Paul then devotes himself completely to the word of God. And Paul solemnly testified to the Jews in Corinth that Jesus was the Christ. A little later, he's rescued from his Jewish opponents by God's sovereign hand through Gallio. And Paul stays there for about 18 months to 24 months, working and ministering and witnessing in Corinth. And then in Acts 18, uh, verses 18 to 28, you see the story of Paul in Ephesus begins. He takes Aquila and Priscilla with him. He enters the Jewish synagogue and reasons with the Jews, again, briefly, He then leaves, promising to return if God wills. And he sails to Caesarea and returns home to his church in Antioch. And we see in verses 24 to 28, uh, Luke introduces us to this character of Apollos. I love this description. Um, I send out text messages throughout the week asking people how I might pray for them. And somebody had the courtesy to ask me how they might pray for me. And I said, please pray for me these things, that God would make me like Apollos, eloquent, learned, mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, accurately and boldly speaking the things concerning Jesus, humbly receiving instruction from Priscilla and Aquila in his case. Now, I want to clarify something I said last week. You might have misunderstood. Priscilla and Aquila did not correct anything that Uh, Apollos had said. They simply explained the way of God to Apollos more accurately. They they added to his already accurate knowledge, they added more, which is the, the goal of all of us is to grow and increase in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel and the Lord Jesus. So, Um, these two have had the blessing of being under Paul's ministry for uh, those two years, give or take, in Corinth. And when Apollos desires to go to Achaia, he ends up ministering in Corinth where he powerfully refutes the Jews in public and he demonstrates that Jesus was the Christ. And it suddenly occurred to me this week while I was studying, if you look at Paul's description or Luke's description of Paul's ministry in Corinth, he says, 
he demonstrated that Jesus was the Christ, and Apollos has the exact same description. I thought that was really interesting, given that these two will eventually be fellow workers. They haven't met yet. Uh, they're still, they've passed each other in the way, but they're both demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ. And then in Acts 19, the story of Paul's ministry in Ephesus continues, and verses 1 to 7 give us the account of the Ephesian dozen, these 12 men who came to saving faith in Christ. I want to just work my way through the text first before I dive more into the main uh, sermon part of the message. So in verse 1, Paul found some disciples, methetes, meaning disciples or learners or pupils. Uh, The text does not say where these 12 men are from, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, Greeks or Romans, or if there's any relationship between them and Apollos. The text is silent about that. In the books of Luke and Acts, Luke uses the word methetes to define disciples of three different possible teachers. There's the Pharisees' disciples in Luke 5.33. There's John's disciples again in 5.33 and Luke 7.18 and 19 and Luke 11 verse 1. And then thirdly, obviously, there's all of Jesus' disciples. He uses the same word, but what's interesting is that Luke uses a defining word, his disciples, your disciples, the disciples of Jesus, every time he mentions specifically Jesus' disciples. So he clearly defines them without any ambiguity, except here. He just says, some disciples. Luke simply calls them that, some disciples. Now, many scholars and commentators make the point that they're John the Baptist's disciples. Well, if so... They did not understand or remember the teaching regarding repentance and the Christ who was coming because Paul explains it to them in verse 4. Or possibly their second or third generation disciples, uh, having been made disciples by some of John's earlier disciples and baptized by one of those earlier disciples. And whatever has happened, they certainly haven't understood the full ministry and message of John the Baptist as they arrive in Ephesus. In verse 2, the beginning part, Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Why does he ask that? Now, I'm conceding that this is speculation, but I think Paul recognized that these 12 men did not bear evidence of the Holy Spirit. So as a faithful pastoral missionary, he boldly asked them regarding the Holy Spirit. And brothers and sisters in Christ, how much we need godly men who are willing, when they watch and observe, to go to them and say, are you sure you're saved? I know in in, uh, my life and in some of my family's life, there was an older brother, uh, not Uncle Jack in this case, in our church in Canada who went and said, are you sure you're saved? And asked them that question. Paul asked them the question. And of course, Paul, who knows that saving faith in Christ is simultaneous to receiving the Holy Spirit. So he asked them, have they received the Holy Spirit? And their answer appears in every major English version with some minor variation like this. We have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of scholars try to force that to mean the Ephesian dozen had heard of the reality of the Holy Spirit, but they had not heard of his coming at Pentecost. Um, 
I had an interesting discussion with all my stacks of commentaries, half saying one thing and half saying something else, and another half saying a third thing. But one of them, a scholar by the name of Lenski, who is a very respected Greek scholar, says simply, leave it as it reads. It says they had not heard. And the key thing about this is it highlights the main point of the story. Those who have not even heard of the Holy Spirit cannot have received him or been truly baptized into Christ or into Christ's body by him. And we're going to look at that as the major part of our message this morning. Verse 3, it says they had been baptized into John's baptism, but as we've already said, they had little to no understanding of John's teaching. In verse 4, Paul needed to explain three things to these men. First, the significance of John's baptism for repentance. Remember also that in Matthew 3, verses 7 to 8, John would not even baptize the Pharisees who were showing no evidence of repentance. So his baptism was very much a recognition of a repentant heart. Secondly, in verse 4, Paul explains to them that John's ministry included the command to believe in the one who was coming. And then thirdly, he specifically identifies who this one is as Jesus. And in verse 5, they heard the message and they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And in verse 6, the Bible says, the Spirit came on them. What is neat about that, that phrase is Luke 1, verse 35, Luke uses the exact same phrase in describing Gabriel speaking to Mary. The Spirit will come upon you. In Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus promises the apostles, the Spirit will come upon you. In Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, another Greek scholar by the name of Schnabel claims that the phrase come upon them or came upon them is parallel to what happened on Pentecost morning. They received the Holy Spirit after Paul baptized them and as he laid his hands on them. And more than one scholar said it could have been that as he was holding them, if you watch in the tank, I don't just let the guy drop in the water. I actually hold on to them and lower them down. And they said it's possible that as he took a hold of them to lower them down and bring them up again, that was his laying on of hands. It might have been as simple as that. He lays hands on them, and this is one of only two times that this is described in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, that he lays hands on, and the Holy Spirit came on them as a result of that. So um, he laid hands on them for a couple of reasons. I understand uh, the question I threw into the list. Uh, Normally, Kathy does up the questions for Bible study, and I added one in, and apparently it caused a bit of controversy, and we certainly had a lively discussion about this, and I was told that, no, I wasn't told this, I'm making the assumption that I'll get out of here alive if I answer the question from the pulpit. So here we go. Uh, The Apostle Paul lays hands on them, identifying with them that they're included as brothers in Christ. It displayed here, as in Acts 8, the apostolic authority over the church. He lays hands on them as an apostolic witness to their genuine conversion. Now, we know that this no longer happens. Why not? Well, for one reason, the apostles are all dead, and there are no new apostles, despite what some fellows in California say. There are no new ones. But we also have the completed New Testament canon of apostolic writings that they didn't have. Uh, The very first gospel, I think I told you a week or so ago, the very first gospel, which is the gospel of Mark, was still five years away from being written. They had, we have now the gospels, 
which witness and reveal Christ's life and death and resurrection. And we have all the epistles that explain and apply the gospel. And together, they define what is and what is not genuine conversion and salvation. So that's why I believe he laid hands on them. That's why it doesn't happen anymore. If you don't agree with me on that, I won't lose my salvation. I'm sure you won't either. Verse 6. They spoke in unlearned languages or tongues, and they prophesied. God, in that moment, graciously gave to them immediate, miraculous evidence of the reality of their salvation, their filling with the Spirit. Now, not all believers in the New Testament experienced this. In fact, I'd argue a majority didn't. Uh, The apostles in the upper room on Pentecost morning received the gift. They spoke in tongues, they prophesied, and so on. But the 3,000 at Pentecost morning, there's no evidence or writing saying that they did. The 2,000 added in Acts 4, there's no evidence that they spoke in tongues. The Samaritans did speak in tongues when when, uh, Peter and John laid hands on them. And the Romans with Cornelius, as the Spirit came on them, they spoke in tongues. But in all the churches that Paul planted... The vast majority didn't do that. Now, Corinth would probably be the exception because Paul talks about that in Corinthians. So to kind of wrap this part up, biblically, for these Ephesian dozen, these 12 men, this is the moment of their salvation, their belief, baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit. At the very least, these men have heard Paul's explanation of repentance of sin, of belief in Jesus, who is the one promised. Now, I'm also sure, and most scholars will tell you the same thing, that the book of Acts gives you really an outline of all the things that were said and done. It's brief. And I'm sure as Paul it says he told them those things, there was a lot more words he said than just what we see in verse 4 there. So, Taking the simple information that Luke gives us about these 12 men, the Ephesian dozen were not genuinely saved disciples of Christ prior to verse 6. Because, very good reason, without the personal work of the Holy Spirit coming on them, there is no salvation. And they did not receive the Spirit until verse 6. So then, the question is for us today, what's the message? What does God want us to know from this text for today? Okay, we need to see through Paul's encounter with the Ephesian dozen that, first of all, it's not whether we've undergone a religious ceremony or we keep religious rituals that determines our genuine salvation. It's not whether we decide to call ourselves Christians or believers or followers or disciples that determines determines our genuine salvation. It is whether or not we have received the Holy Spirit and his work in us producing ongoing belief, ongoing repentance of sin, and ongoing transformation into the image of Christ. So first of all, salvation is not the result of a religious ritual. In the text, in the story, The Ephesian dozen are presenting themselves as disciples. They have at some point, as they tell him, tell Paul, received a baptism of either John himself or one of John's disciples. But they have not believed the message that he proclaimed about the one coming. And they have not, certainly not acted on it. 
They've not received the Holy Spirit, nor even heard of him if we take their words. They're not exercising any faith in God or Christ for salvation. They've simply undergone an external, outward, ritual baptism. Now, baptism and ritual washings, as you know, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see it comes up over and over again. Wash with water, wash with water. Baptisms and ritual washings normally performed by the person themselves happen all through the Old Testament. And in New Testament times, other groups besides Christian groups used baptisms and washings as part of their ritual keeping. On the basis of that, they conclude that they are disciples. And beloved, there is a trap for us if we're not careful. And we don't want to be caught in the trap of thinking to ourselves, because I have been baptized, I'm saved. No, you're not. Because I attend church every week, every Bible study, every prayer meeting, I must be saved. No, that is not the witness of Scripture. Because I fast twice a week, I give to the poor, I never go to movies, I never drink alcohol, I never smoke cigarettes or have any fun, I must be saved. No, that's not it at all. Because I always do this or I never do that, I'm saved. No, that's not the witness of Scripture. Religious ritual saves nobody. If anybody knew that, then it was Paul. He certainly knew that. You go back to Philippians chapter 3, and you read from verse 2 to verse 11, and he describes all his works in the flesh, all the things he had that made him something in religious people's eyes. At the end of it all, he says, it's rubbish, it's garbage compared to the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. For whose sake, amen, brother. I love it when you do that. For whose sake... He has considered all that stuff garbage and rubbish. Listen to an encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. It illustrates the point carefully. Uh, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 29, 13 in this. This is from Mark 7, verses 2 to 13. The Pharisees had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men, neglecting the command of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Notice the contrast, traditions and rituals and where their hearts truly at. Brothers and sisters, isn't it true? We, we've heard, all heard it. You can think what you like, but don't say it. Who's ever heard that? I, I did a lot when I was a kid, uh, especially when we were on school trips and we went with our Christian band teacher. And he'd say, I know what you may be thinking, but for goodness sake, don't say it because you'll get us in trouble. But you realize that that's, that's a problem with that. 
We start to bring that same ideology and we can think whatever we like in here, but what we say out here, what we do out here, as long as it all looks right, everything's okay. No, it's not. Because if this is not right with God, whatever words we sing, whatever prayers we offer, whatever we do with our hands and feet, when everybody else can see us, that's a problem. We've done exactly what Jesus is saying. In vain do they worship me. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what I want to get us to understand this morning is salvation begins as a work of the Holy Spirit in us and on us. Salvation begins by God making us alive in Christ. It begins as we respond to God's regeneration with faith in God. And once that happens, we are now in a relationship with God in the person of Christ by the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit and our faith relationship with God leads us to good works. See, you put good works at the front end, huge problem. But when God makes us alive and there's a response of faith and love and devotion to God that flows backwards to God, flows to God, the outflow of that, the things we do, that's evidence of a real salvation. But if you're depending on your baptism, if you're depending on the fact that you've been coming to Noble Park Baptist Church for 50 years, if you're depending on all the things that you do as what makes you a Christian... Please listen. Because it starts with a work of God in the heart. And that response in faith to what God has done and the outflow of that, like obedience to God in baptism out of love for Christ. That's evidence of what God has done. Being born again by the Holy Spirit and faith in God produces good works like committing yourself to a local church, like dedicated reading and studying and meditating on scripture, like obedience of prayer, responding to God. The obedience of doing the good works which God has prepared for us in loving service and obedience to God. The obedience of a repentant lifestyle as the outflow of being made alive by God and responding to God in faith. That's the way it should be. The danger is, The great danger is sometimes we emphasize really hard, and I'm guilty of this, and I know it. We emphasize really hard those things like baptism and membership and reading and praying and church attending. And the danger is we make those things the determining factor of whether someone's saved or not. And that's wrong. The evidence of our genuine conversion is the outflow of good works that we do. But religious ritual without the work of the Holy Spirit saves nobody. More than that, it serves as a deceptive snare to distract us from the truth of genuine salvation. Secondly, salvation is not the result of our decision. Look back in our story. Paul finds these 12 men who must have called themselves disciples. Now, you can say again, I'm speculating if you want to, but I believe it stands to good reason. If Paul did not detect anything in them that was consistent with discipleship, why would he and Luke have described them as some disciples, other than what they must have said about themselves? 
But calling ourselves and them calling themselves disciples does not make them genuine disciples. Any of us deciding to call ourselves disciples does not make it so. This is a hard message because it's challenging. It's challenging for me, and my hope and I pray it's challenging for you too. Why do you call yourself a Christian? We need to take a look. Any of us deciding to call ourselves disciples or Christians does not make it so. Genuine salvation does not begin with our decision. It cannot. Genuine salvation as a work of the Holy Spirit makes us believers and disciples. One of the many dangers of the modern Christian movement, especially in Western countries, is what is called decisional regeneration. What that means is we hear the gospel. We're convicted of the truth of the gospel. We understand the need for salvation. We choose to accept Christ into our hearts or we choose to make a decision for Christ. And having decided for Christ, we conclude we're born again and we're saved. There's no biblical evidence for that. The great danger of this is we associate our decision with God's making us alive, making us the one in control, not God. In effect, it's our decision that saves us. Believing that I am a Christian because of a decision I made is possibly a false conversion and not not necessarily a genuine work of God, the Holy Spirit. Listen to what the Bible says. In John 1, verses 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 13, verse, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, the Bible nowhere tells us to make a decision for Christ, to accept Christ into your heart, or ask Jesus into your heart. It's simply not there in Scripture. So then, what do we do? I mean, if we we don't ask for that, then how do we preach the gospel? Well, I think the best place to look is the best example of all, and that's Jesus himself. And if Mark's gospel is the first written, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in history. And it says this, Jesus, in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent, turn away from sin and turn towards God. Believe the good news that Christ died for your sins, that Christ was buried and rose again, that Christ is coming again to judge the world. So repent and believe the gospel. But here's the great problem. The Bible says it's incapable of man to choose Christ. Listen to what it says. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Romans 8, verses 7, 8, the Bible says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to put it graphically, 
Asking someone to make a decision for Christ is like asking a corpse to dance. It's not going to happen. Problem number two, the Bible says we're utterly helpless to come to God on our own. John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6, verse 65, Jesus again says, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The Bible says that no one seeks for God. Romans 3, there is none who understands. A little later, there is none who seeks for God. A little later again, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. And then to emphasize it, he says, there is not even one. You say, that's hopeless. And you're right. It would be hopeless except for one thing. The Lord is our salvation. Listen to what the Bible says. Teaches us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. This is one of the most beautiful expositions of how the gospel works. But God, (laughs) two of the greatest words in the whole English language. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he would show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one will boast. I'm so glad when we get to heaven, not one of us is going to say, I made it. (laughs) I'm here. feel sorry for those guys, but I made it. Not one of us will stand there and say that. Every single one of us will bow the knee to Christ and declare that he is Lord. And if it was not for him and his grace, we would all be in hell. Every last one of us. By the way, did you notice the order of actions in that passage? If you have have your Bible, flip over to Ephesians 2 and just track along with me. This is so cool. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, God is rich in mercy. Rich. Not just has a bit of mercy, he's got lots of it. In Ephesians 1, Paul says he lavishes grace on us. He dumps out all of his grace in a massive pile on us. Number two, God loves us in verse number four. Brother and sister in Christ, my friend sitting here this morning who doesn't know Jesus, you've never experienced love until you've experienced God's love in Christ. Not love that gave you everything that you wanted, But love that was expressed by stretching out his hands and allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. That's love. He loved us. He made us alive. The idea there is he caused us to be born again. He regenerated us. He raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And the Bible says he saved us by grace through faith. And that not of our own doing. Salvation is all God's work 
to the praise of the glory of his grace. So how does it work? I mean, literally, how does it happen that we get saved if it's all of God and nothing of us? How does that actually work? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans 10 that he sends a preacher to preach the message. The man, if he's faithful, stands up there with his Bible open and says, Thus saith the Lord. And he declares the gospel of Christ. He uses scripture and he weaves it through and he makes his message clearly and plainly known. That Jesus Christ died for sinners and was raised again. He preaches the gospel and we bring scripture to bear as we do so. And God through his Holy Spirit makes a listener alive. He causes him to be born again. And I remember I, 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 sitting like, like it was just yesterday. Sitting on a little bunk bed as a 13-year-old kid, which was a very long time ago, and hearing the message. I'd heard it so many times. I was sick of hearing it. And all of a sudden, I felt that warmth in my heart. And there was a piece in me that just lunged forward to get it. You see, what was that? That was the work of God in me in that moment to make me alive. All of a sudden, it wasn't some stupid Christian message I'd heard so many times. It was a message I wanted to hear. I wanted to know more. And I trusted God to save me. And almost immediately, I love books. You walk into my op. Someone saw me on Zoom and saw my library from behind and, and was commenting on how many books I owned. Then they asked an embarrassing question, have I read them all? And the answer was, no, not yet. I love books. As a kid who hated reading, I all of a sudden couldn't get enough. Every bit of free time I spent back in my camp bunk with my Bible open, trying to figure it all out. We preach the gospel. We bring scripture to bear. God, through his Holy Spirit, makes the listener alive. And the Bible tells me in Romans 10 that faith comes to them as they hear the word of Christ. As he makes us alive, he infuses faith and we respond with the faith that God gives us. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 tells us. The listener believes in response to what they're hearing. Not just the, the, the audible hearing, but the hearing of the heart. So first of all, it's not by religious ritual. It's secondly, it's not by a decision that we call ourselves disciples. Thirdly, salvation is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in us. Back to our story in the text. The Ephesian does and had been baptized into John's baptism in the past. They had not heard of the Holy Spirit. They're now hearing Paul's explanation of John's baptism for repentance. And they've heard Paul repeat John's message, promising them that there was one yet coming. And in him they were to believe. They've heard uh, Paul repeat that the Messiah, this one is Jesus and I'm convinced, again, because of Romans 10, 17, that as they're hearing this, faith is being infused in them. The Spirit of God is already at work in them to make them alive in Christ and to save them. They, they're baptized, and then they receive the filling of the Spirit and the miraculous evidence of it. Salvation is a result of the Holy Spirit's work in and on us. And you say, hold on a second, wait a minute. Isn't it Christ's work that saves us? Was it not him who lived a sinless life, who suffered in our place, who died on a cross, who was buried and rose again? Is that not the work that saves us? 
And the answer is yes, absolutely it is. But the application of that work to each person is a work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. He applies that work to each of us. I want to unpack his work as we finish up. In 1 Peter 1, 2, the Bible tells us we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. God the Spirit works on us to bring us to God and the gospel. You are not here because you got up this morning and thought, I think I'll go to church today. <laughs> you got, you're here because God worked in your heart and put that desire there. I wasn't at Anvil Island Bible Camp because I wanted to be there because I don't think I really did. I discovered they played football, so that was a good reason to go. But God had other plans. And I heard the message of the gospel again and believed. Listen, it's no accident that we come into contact with the gospel. God the Spirit is at work to bring them into contact with Paul and the gospel. And God of the Spirit is at work in our lives to bring us that point in contact with the gospel. In John 3, 5, and 6, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. God works in us to make us alive, to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again so that, so that we can respond in faith and repentance to God. Titus 3 verse 5, uh, Paul writes to Titus and says that God saved us not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God makes us alive so that we can hear and understand and believe and respond. No, a corpse cannot dance, but a regenerated person can dance. You think you come to God on your own? The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that's impossible. But the wonderful grace of God, the marvelous grace we were just singing about, is that God works in us to bring us to him, to open our eyes, to make us alive, to give us the faith to believe. And I read biography after biography, and I see the same phrases coming up. In every one, there was a sudden warming in my heart. I went, ah, I know that feeling. There was a sudden longing in my heart for God. I remember that. God has made me alive, and now I respond. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. We talk about our being baptized, or sorry, about our receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning being filled with the Spirit. But in another sense, this is cool, the Spirit of God baptizes us into the body of Christ. It's one of the reasons why so many faiths associate water baptism and church membership. One of the reasons why we don't bring people into membership until they've been baptized, because that baptism displays the reality of their conversion, their salvation. And when you're baptized by the Spirit, you're baptized into the body of Christ. He literally takes you and dunks you into the deep water of the church. That's why... 
Church attendance is so important, not as a religious ritual, but as the outflow of a saved life. Because when you come to church, you are with family in a way so much greater than any other time in your life. Like a child born into a family, so we are born again and regenerated into the family of God. And we display that truth by becoming members of local visible churches. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, the Bible says that in Christ, or in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The, uh, they don't do it much anymore. Uh, does anybody here an engineer? Did you have an engineer stamp when you were an engineer? No. Did anybody here have an engineer stamp or, or a professional stamp? Oh, okay. Times have changed. Okay. Back when I was a young'un, um, they used to have these things called a seal. It's like a big metal thing, and they put the paper underneath it, and they bring it down and uh, crunch the thing on it, and it in, impressed a seal, a mark into that paper that when you kind of held up to light, you could see the seal of that professional engineer or the professional architect or the professional accountant. He had a seal. That's the idea here. The Spirit of God is, if you like, we are impressed by His presence. In other sense, uh, the old cowboys used to brand the cattle. The stockmen, I'm sure, did the same kind of thing. Took a burning hot iron and branded a mark into the back of the cow. Not so much fun for the cow. And that everybody knew, ah, that cow belongs to that rancher over there. You know the cool thing is? What marks us as Christians? It's not the size of the Bible we carry. It's not the way we live, or it is, as much as it is the Spirit of God's infilling us, sealing us, branding us with His impression so that our lives are changed to conform to the image of Christ, that we bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and everybody can see, ah, Daryl, he belongs to Jesus. How do you know? Spirit of God in him. One of the reasons why I'm more convinced than ever that these 12 men, when Paul first met them, is he asked them about receiving the Spirit. If the Spirit of God had been in them, surely he, also filled with the Spirit of God, would have recognized it. You ever been somewhere where you meet someone and you get talking to them and you're kind of like, man, there's a connection here. I just I can sense it. And halfway through the conversation, you're talking about building a house or something in my context, and you just break it off. Are you a Christian? Yeah, you, yeah. And all of a sudden you recognize, ah, oh, there's something there. You, you picked it up almost immediately. And your spirit is testifying in something inside. He says, that person is like you. It isn't this color of his skin or it isn't the size of his body or the trade that he works. It's the fact that you're both filled with the spirit of God. That spirit has impressed his likeness on you. That's what it means. So the question that you should be asking, that I've been asking myself, how can I know if I'm truly saved, if it's all by the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and nothing of me? How can I know I've truly been born again? The Bible tells us, Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Genuine salvation is evidenced by the presence of the Spirit of God within us. Oh, but hold on a second now. 
How do I know that I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me? Romans 8 verse 16, the Bible says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. God's Holy Spirit communicates the truth to us. That's why, again, I don't believe these 12 men at the beginning of the story were saved. They had not even heard of the Holy Spirit. I have to conclude they were not yet saved. That happened later. So how does the Spirit himself bear witness with us that we are the children of God? Galatians 5, 22 to 25 gives us one key. Paul writes, but the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let's also walk by the Spirit. The fruit, singular, I emphasize that for a good reason. It's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit. Or to phrase another way, it's the evidence of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. It's the testimony of the Spirit. When we respond to something in a way that's completely unnatural, right? We've all been there. Some guy cuts us off, and the natural man rears up inside of us. going to get up there, pass that guy, and show him what not. No. And instead, the response is love. When the natural man wants to respond in frustration instead of patience. You can always tell when things aren't right in here. When my reaction to things is anger. My reaction is impatience and frustration and lashing out. I know that something is not right in here. There's sin that's allowed to take root in my life that needs to be dealt with. The Spirit of God gives evidence of his presence. It's like a light inside of a light bulb. Everybody looks like a glass bulb on the outside, but when the Spirit is shining, the light just pours out of them, and everybody can see there's something different about that person. So how do we wrap all this up? These men arrive in Corinth. Perhaps they're already there. We don't know where they're from. Paul comes across them. And something in their demeanor, their character, their words, their bearing says to Paul, something's not quite right here. And as a gentle, loving pastor, he asks the question, have you received the Holy Spirit? We've not even heard. And then Paul carries on in his questioning. In the end, he makes known to them the truth of the gospel, repentance, belief in the one who was to come. And the pouring out of the Spirit. And these men believe. And they're baptized. And in that moment, they, the Spirit comes on them. And they're saved. Brother and sister in Christ. Where is your life at? Do you, as you rise in the morning and go through your day. And the day closes and the light goes out. And you're lying on your bed alone with your thoughts. And you look back. Do you see the evidence of the Spirit of God in your life? cry out to you, I plead with you, get before God and ask him to clarify that for you, to show you the evidence of genuine salvation. One of the responsibilities of pastors and elders is one day, our greatest responsibility lies in the day yet to come. We will come before the Lord 
and like shepherds with sheep, we will bring sheep with us. And we will say, in effect, Lord, these are the ones you've entrusted to our care, and we bring them here for you to judge and examine. An absolute tragedy to look and recognize as the Lord goes through those sheep and he separates out those who are goats and he draws to himself those who are sheep. An absolute tragedy to see men and women who have been in the church for a short time, a long time, or a very long time being separated out as goats because there was never, ever a genuine work of the Spirit in their hearts. I am not talking about leaping off the walls and speaking in tongues and all that sort of nonsense. I'm talking about the real evidence of the Spirit of God working in here. So let me ask you the question that's, that Paul asked. I'll ask you as a group, and you can answer in your own heart. Are you truly born again? Are you sure you're saved? plea with you. Take time before the Lord. Go back through the stories and the verses of Scripture. Paul Washer tells a great story. I might have told it before, but forgive me if I repeat the story. It illustrates the point perfectly. He was preaching up in the very northern part of Canada, up near the Arctic Circle, and he got started in his message, and he was not a very many people in the room. Started preaching, and as he was in the opening part of his sermon, the door burst open, and as he says, this giant of a man came stomping into the, the church great big man, walked down the front and sat in the very front row and uh, oil worker or miner or something. And Paul just kept preaching and he got done. He just kept watching the guy as he was preaching and he got done. He didn't go and talk to him. He went right down to the guy in the front row and sat down beside him and said, how can I help you? And the man said, looked at him and he said, I just came from my doctor's office. He said, I've got uh, cancer of some kind. And Paul said, how long? And he said, probably three months at the most before I die. And he said, I don't know God. And that moment, I think every one of us would say, oh, but, you know, it's so simple. Believe in Jesus. Do you believe in God? You're saved. And, and I would have thought, you know, I probably would have done the same thing. And Paul explains, he said, I sat down with that man. He said, for the better part of two hours, the church emptied out. He canceled his flight to leave. And he sat beside this man. And for two hours, they went from verse to verse to verse to verse, to verse. And he went backwards and forwards, showing him every gospel verse, reading the gospel story. And the man sat there and listened and listened and listened. And finally, Paul, let's pray together. And he prayed for him. He said, let's, let's go over it again. And he opened, he said, he said, why don't you read John 3.16? And the man said, yeah, we, we've read that one. And Paul said, just read it again. And the man picked up his Bible, the Bible in his gigantic hands and he started to read, for God so loved, and his hands started to shake. And he couldn't finish. And Paul looked over at me and said, there was tears flowing down his face. He said, I'm saved. I'm saved. Paul said, uh, yeah? And he said, yeah. He said, he looks at Paul and goes, have you read this? And Paul sort of laughed. He said, yeah, I've read it before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It wasn't coercion. It wasn't repeat this prayer after me. It wasn't just ask Jesus into your heart. 
Paul did the only thing that any of us can do with everyone we meet. He opened the Bible to him and he read him those verses. And as he read the words of Christ, the work of the Spirit of God began in this man. It was already at work, the fact that he showed up. And the work continued as he read, the Spirit of God was working. And all of a sudden, in the middle of reading that verse, regeneration happened and faith showed up and the man got it. Not because he was convinced by Paul's eloquence, but because he was convinced by the Spirit of God that that was the truth of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, this morning, are you sure you're saved? My friend sitting here, and you know that you're not. I urge you, open the scriptures and read. Come and talk to myself or Poovan or one of the men, one of the women in this church that you know, and ask them to explain it to you and cry out to God. The Bible tells us that God, we will find God if we diligently seek for him. And as God, if you're seeking, God is at work. Keep seeking, you will find. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing the benediction, please. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just come before you again this morning and we give thanks, O oh God, for the message of the gospel, the great hope that we have because of the gospel. Father, I cry out to you this morning for those standing here in this room. Father, for everyone who is calling himself or herself a disciple, a Christian, a believer in Christ. Father, I pray that you would make that reality clear to them, whether they are truly yours or not. And Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that you would work to make them alive and give them the faith to believe. Father, for the one standing here who does not know what all this means, is struggling somehow to put it all together. And Father, I plead with you. Father, give them the courage to go and ask someone. Give them Father, the desire to open the scriptures and read and discover for themselves. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make them alive, that they would believe and be saved. Father, I ask you for your help. Lord, there are so many more things I wanted to say. And Father, I'm sure there's probably something that I shouldn't have said. So I ask you, O oh God, by the power of the Spirit to wipe it from our memory. Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. May the peace of